Lord, with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have given us your word and that you have preserved it down through the ages and that you have also given us the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand your word, who stores it in our soul and helps us to apply it in every area of our life. Now, Father, as we study these doctrines this evening. We pray that we may come to a a greater understanding of grace, grace orientation, and how to implement that in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm still fighting with the uh, effects of the flu, so between the antihistamines and the decongestants and all the other drugs, plus the flu, we'll see if I make any cogent sense this evening. We're in Genesis chapter 13, and at the culmination of a study in Genesis 13, I'm focusing on grace orientation as a problem-solving device. By way of review, what we've seen in Genesis chapter 13 is that Abram is faced with a crisis, a crisis related once again to the promise of God. We've studied that Abraham's life, as it's related, uh, related in Genesis, is a series of tests, and these tests are the ways that God uses to bring him from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity in the same way that we move from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Testing is the way that God does this. Testing in the New Testament, in the Greek, utilizes the word perosmos, and the word perosmos has to do with applying an external pressure In many ways, it was utilized in the process of refining metals where uh, fire was used to burn off the uh, impurities. And it is, uh, in in the scripture, it's used as the adversity or prosperity test God takes us through in order to uh, sanctify us, in order to teach us obedience to Him. One of the interesting things and fascinating things that I'm working through as we go through uh, my study of Hebrews on Thursday night and we'll get to is the fact that on uh, two or three occasions in Hebrews, the writer emphasizes the fact that Jesus uh, grew and learned obedience by the things that he suffered and that Jesus in his humanity had to go through that maturation or sanctification process. And in sanctification, we almost always think of it in terms of somehow dealing with getting rid of sin in our life. And the focus in sanctification is really teaching us obedience to God and to loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because whatever Jesus is going through in that sanctification process is true of him without a sin nature. It was also true of Adam in the garden without a sin nature. And so God takes us through a learning process that does not simply involve doing away with sin. Of course, living this side of the fall, it means that we have an added burden of learning to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength simply because we're having to deal with the sin nature. And so that makes it uh, even more difficult. Abram is 
facing the same problem. God has given him basic promises in the Abrahamic covenant, promises related to land, seed, and blessing. And initially, we're starting off with tests related to the land aspect of the promise. He's told to leave his home, leave his family, father, kin, uh, kinsmen, everyone, and go to a land that God will show him. Then after he does that, in Genesis 15, or excuse me, Genesis uh, 12, uh, 6, God tells him that he will give him this land, and immediately after that, there's a test related to the land. There is famine, there is suffering, adversity in the land that God has uh, promised to give him. And the issue there is, is he going to remain in the land, remain obedient to God, trusting him, even when there are negative factors. And, of course, when you study that, he failed the test, and he went down to Egypt. Numerous things happened down there. God takes him through a uh, series of discipline, and he uh, finally has to uh, leave because the Pharaoh recognizes that he's a source of several problems. So he's evicted from, from Egypt, and he goes back home, but he gets back in fellowship. And now there's another test related to the land. And in Genesis 13.6, we're told that the land could not sustain him, his servants, Lot and his servants. So verse 6 informs us that the land, once again, is the issue. He's back in the land, and there is a problem here. The problem, though, just as a side note, isn't really related to the productivity of the land. Later on, when God is going to bring the nation back from Egypt, again coming from Egypt, there is... Tremendous productivity in the land. The land will be flowing with milk and honey. But at this point, there's a production problem. They can't sustain uh, his servants, all of his servants, and all of Lot's servants, which we know numbered around, his servants numbered around 300 plus. And so we're not talking about a vast number of people. Maybe there's still a residual effect from the famine in the land. But whatever it is, there is a, uh, a test here. And God, in his sovereignty, is using this to bring to completion that severing process that he commanded of Abram at the beginning. He told Abram to leave his father's household, to leave his kindred, uh, kinsmen, and to go to the land. He left with his father, and he went to Haran and stayed there for a while until, until his father died. And then he goes on to the land, but he still has Lot with him. So God is going to use this situation to further separate Abram from his family so that Abram is in a position to fully trust God for the provision of the seed. He's not going to be able to find a substitute in his nephew Lot. He's going to try later on through his servant Eliezer, and that's, God's going to prevent that. But the principle we see here is that testing in life must be viewed as being under the sovereign control of God. Testing must be viewed as being under the sovereign control of God. It may seem random, it may seem chaotic, but we know that Jesus Christ controls history, and God is overseeing the situations in our life. Testing in the form of adversity, in the form of of, uh, prosperity, testing flows from three sources in our life this side of the fall. First of all, it flows from the cosmic system. We live in a fallen world. The devil is the prince and the power of the air. He is the god of this age. And the cosmic system is his plan and policy for promoting some sort of unity and order and peace in human history to demonstrate that he can function as God. And the cosmic system, though, is always going to deteriorate into chaos because only God can control in his sovereignty and in his his omnipotence can control all the factors. Satan cannot do that. And so the cosmic system is always going to deteriorate into chaos, into war, into famines, into uh, economic downturns, whatever it may be, political chaos. This is always going to happen. As Dr. Schaefer noted in his systematic theology, all of the famines, all the wars, all the human suffering, all of the uh, chaos that occurs in human history is one of the greatest testimonies to the inability of Satan to achieve what he wants to achieve. It is tremendous testimony to his uh, impotence. 
Now, we know in Scripture that testing or temptation doesn't derive from God. We know this from James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 15, a passage we'll look at uh, a little later on this evening as we come to it for uh, another vantage point. What I was looking at last time to start off with, and we're trying to understand the dynamics of the, of the, um, of, of, of the grace orientation, we have to understand that it's built on the faith rest drill. Ultimately, all the problem-solving devices function off of the faith rest drill. The faith rest drill in itself, as I pointed out last time, focuses on the trustworthiness of God to do what he promised. If we boil it down, that's essentially what we're talking about. Is God trustworthy? Is his word trustworthy? Is it sufficient? That's the number one corollary of the doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture is that it's also sufficient. And is can we trust God to do what he promised? So as I began our lesson this evening reciting various promises from both the Old Testament and New Testament, promises that are familiar to all of you, we need to understand that these are to be implemented on a regular basis. Do we really believe God when he makes those promises that we should not be anxious for anything, but that we should uh, go to him in prayer, uh, expressing uh, thankfulness for the situation, and knowing that God's peace, which surpasses all comprehension, uh, will guard our soul. Do we really believe that? And sometimes we do, and sometimes it's an effort. It's a struggle in the midst of certain uh, crises in life, certain pressures. It's a moment-by-moment wrestling sometimes just to come to grips with that promise and make it a reality in terms of our own, our own thinking. That's the process of spiritual growth. And we focus on the essence of God. And I pointed out last time that it's a good exercise just to go through each attribute of God and to think in terms of how that applies to your problem, whatever it may be, and what it means in terms of a solution. And so we look at the essence of God, and then we focus on his integrity, which I pointed out last time, looks at his righteousness, justice, love, and his veracity. We went through various psalms showing how these four attributes are continuously linked together in one way or another. This is the foundation of his relationship with man, and it is from this foundation, which uh, we're told the righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and love and truth proceed from it, that it is from this foundation that God's grace flows to us in the period of time between the fall of Adam and the new heavens and the new earth. As we look at that, we understand that grace then becomes a a problem-solving device. It becomes a way in which we can look at certain adversities and handle them by application of grace. Now, what does that mean? We, We often talk about grace orientation. In fact, I ran across the phrase in a context the other day where I saw a list of grace-oriented churches. And I stopped and I said, well, what do they mean by grace orientation? And when we talk about using grace as a problem-solving device, what exactly do we mean? How do we use grace as a problem-solving device? Paul talks about it in this way in two two passages, 2 Timothy 2, well, Paul in one passage, Peter in the other. 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So by understanding grace, we can have strength in the midst of certain pressures, certain adversities in life. In 2 Peter, we're told that we are to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is to think about how we go through this process. What are the mechanics of utilizing grace? What are the characteristics that we run into in in grace orientation? Now, we laid the foundation with this chart that in spiritual childhood we master five different spiritual skills. And these are confession filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit, the faith rest drill, 
grace orientation, doctrine orientation. Now, all these are familiar to most of you. And then as we master these skills, we move on through the next level of spiritual growth, which is a personal sense of our eternal destiny, learning to live today in light of eternity. You see the same thing happen with uh, young people as they grow up. As you go through those adolescent years, you, you watch teenagers and they make decisions and they never think about the consequences. And as they grow older, they begin to realize that, that there are consequences to their decisions and they begin to learn to postpone gratification. They begin to learn to postpone certain uh, activities until later so that they can... Uh, uh, achieve what they want to achieve in terms of uh, longer goals than just what's going to uh, please them today or tomorrow. And this is a sign of maturity. So this is when we move through adolescence. And in spiritual adulthood, this is when our the whole concept of love begins to mature. And biblically, we have three categories of love, a personal love for God. Now, when we look at this, this doesn't mean that a new... Young believer doesn't have some measure of love for God, because he does. To the degree that he has understood his salvation, to the degree that he understands what what God's grace meant at salvation, he has that measure of love, just as a three-year-old has a measure of love for his parent. It's not what a mature adult may have in terms of love for his parent, but it's the love comparable to, to that age. We have personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. Now, these three uh, stress busters, these three spiritual skills, are all built on the three basic skills of the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. There's a logical structure there. If you don't understand grace orientation and the elements in grace orientation, you can't have a mature love for God, and you can't learn to have impersonal love for all mankind. You can't learn to implement what Jesus said in John 13, 33, and 34, that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So you have certain prerequisites to the more advanced spiritual skills, and the ultimate... uh, Spiritual skill is sharing the happiness of God or inner happiness. Now, in this chart, where about where I finished last time, I was demonstrating that while we look at these five basic spiritual skills in terms of a logical relationship, they are there's a dynamic relationship. They interconnect and interrelate. The faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation all blend together. You don't just learn one, and then you learn the other, and then you learn another. They all function uh, interdependently, so that as you learn certain promises, you are that's doctrinal orientation. You believe them. You believe the promise. You learn something about the essence of God. And so you enter into a problem, and you're claiming that promise or the principle. You latch on to it. You know that God is omnipotent, and that means he's greater than any problem you face. You know that God is omniscient, so you know that he is aware of any, uh, of the, he's been aware of that problem from eternity past, and that he, is, in his grace, he has provided a solution for it. So you see, you've learned some doctrine about the essence of God. Now, in terms of the faith rest drill, you're latching on to that doctrine, mixing your faith with that doctrine, and then you are applying that to the situation. In the same sense, as we understand the grace of God, we begin to understand how God's grace was demonstrated to us, and that that becomes the basis for our social skills, as it were, how we relate to people is in the same way that God has related to us in grace orientation. So these skills are interrelated. Now, by way of introduction, I defined grace as unearned favor or unmerited kindness. This is the basic meaning of grace. It's unearned favor. It's unmerited kindness. It is the, the expression of God's love to creatures who do not deserve it. Therefore, grace can only be demonstrated to fallen creatures who have minus R, who lack 
righteousness. When Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall, before the fall, when they have perfect righteousness, God relates to them on the basis of his perfect love because his perfect righteousness has affinity with their perfect righteousness. God is giving them everything out of his love. It's not unmerited. It's not unearned because there is affinity between his righteousness and their righteousness. But as soon as there is the fall and they have lost righteousness, then God's dealing with them is no longer based on their possession of righteousness. It is based solely and exclusively on his character, who he is, not on who they are. And to understand that is the foundation to being able to move beyond the basics of grace orientation into impersonal love. Because impersonal love is not based on who somebody is or what they've done. That is removed from the equation. In grace orientation, the focus is on the character of God. Now, in God's grace towards us, the issue is his character. His justice, his righteousness, his love, his immutability. This is a foundation of all of his actions towards us, not who we are or what we have done. Now, when we, in turn, are exercising grace orientation towards others, it's not based on who we are. We're still fallen creatures. It's based on who God is. We have to understand that we are, the the model that's given in Scripture, for example, uh, Paul says that we are to forgive others as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. So the model becomes what God did for us. We are to deal with others in grace in the same way that God dealt with us. So the foundation for grace orientation is not who and what we are, it's who and what God is. It always comes back to the character of God. So we have the interdependent dynamic between faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, and grace orientation. As I think about this, and we try to wrap our minds around what grace orientation entails, I broke it down into several elements. First of all, we have grace in salvation. This is the, found, this is the source of understanding what grace is. Romans 5.8 5, says that... God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the expression of his grace. While we were yet sinners, that means that as, as God thought about us in terms of salvation and his provision of salvation for us, he is looking at us in terms of being fallen creatures in complete hostility and enmity with him. We are viewed as his enemies. We are, he is looking at us as those who are shaking our fist in the air at him, not wanting to have anything to do with him. He demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, still at enmity with him, and still in rebellion to him, he is going to go to the maximum effort to provide everything for us in salvation, despite everything that we're doing, no matter how Hostile, no matter how negative, no matter how mean-spirited man is towards God, God is going to put forth the maximum effort to do what is right for man. So it's fundamentally rooted in his righteousness. He's going to do what is right toward us despite our situation. So we begin by understanding what grace is in terms of salvation. And we uh, think about that now. As I look, was wrestling with this and thinking it through, I thought about Abram. Now, how did Abraham understand grace? Because what's happening in Genesis 13, as he has this conflict between his servants and Lot's servants, and there's this great interpersonal uh, problem that's developing. There's, there's this great personal problem developing between, between their people. Abram takes Lot up on a hillside. And he shows him all the land. And he makes this magnanimous gesture, and he says, just take whatever land you want. Just look everywhere. Just explore it. Take the best. He offers him everything. Abram's operating from a position of strength. He's no longer trying. He's not trying to keep the best of the land back for himself. So in his generosity, he is, he is handling the problem. He's using gr- grace toward 
toward Lot. Now, how did he come to understand grace? If you look at the Old Testament, the word grace has only been used one time so far. And that was in Genesis chapter 6 when we're told that Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of God. That's the first and that's the only time the word grace is used up to this point. Now, even though the word's only used that one time, obviously God has been dealing with man in grace. So historically... Abram would know about the grace of God, first of all, from how God dealt with Adam and Eve at the fall, that he provided a means of salvation for them, and he understood the whole dynamic of sacrifices uh, that had been laid down uh, in the previous dispensation, and, in, and he was, of course, at, when we studied that he had gone through the land to Bethel and Ai and uh, Beersheba, and he had built these altars, so he understood the whole principle of grace, and he understood that in terms of salvation. We'll see it when we come to Genesis 15:7 that Abram had uh, believed God, and it had been imputed to him as righteousness. So he understands grace historically uh, through the fall. He would understand grace historically through the flood that Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He would understand it uh, from his own salvation, as Genesis 15:7 references, and he would understand it from the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when he, if, he was, if he's thinking this thing through logically, which is what we need to do sometimes in the midst of a crisis, we need to just stop and go back to basics and say, okay, let's stabilize all of our emotions and not hit the panic button, and let's just think about what's going on here. He would think about the fact that this land wasn't his to begin with. He didn't have an inherent right to this land. In the same way, we don't have an inherent right to anything in life. As fallen creatures, if we got what we deserved, we would be sent to the lake of fire immediately. But God in his grace gives us 60, 70, 80 years, gives every human being a lifespan and an opportunity to trust in him and come to salvation. That is grace. In Abraham's case, not only does Abraham have a grace-based salvation, but on top of that, God gives him this covenant, gives him this land. It's not based on anything Abraham has done. It's not based on his character. In fact, he has initially, when he's given the promise, he doesn't even uh, completely fulfill the commands that God gives. He takes his family with him. He's, he's only in partial obedience. And what we see is that he's understanding the fact that the land is his by a free gift. He has no right to it, and it's up to God to fulfill the promise. It's up to God to give him the land. So once he understands that in fellowship, that all that he has is really from God, then he is free to be generous with it because he knows that God is going to sustain him and provide for him. This is our basis for understanding grace orientation towards people, to be magnanimous to those who don't, don't deserve it, to treat people with kindness. That's the root meaning of this word that we find so far in the Old Testament for grace is the word hen. It looks like this in the Hebrew, and it's, it's found in a, various different forms, sort of C-H-E-N, and in about, oh, a number of times in the in uh, the Psalms, the writer uses the form kaneni, which means be gracious to me. And it not only has the idea of grace, but it's the idea of favor. And the Greeks, uh, when they translated it into the Greek uh, Old, Old Testament, the Septuagint, they translated it with a form of the word uh, elias for mercy. And it is the it often has the connotation of kindness. So it's a, it's a rich term and gives us a great understanding of what uh, grace means. It is an expression of kindness, generosity, goodness to those who don't deserve it. And in this situation, Lot has no claim to the land. Lot has no right to any of this land. God has given it to Abram. Yet Abram, because he understands grace, is free to be generous despite the fact that he's dealing with somebody who is causing problems for him and whose people are causing problems and has no right, no inherent right to the land. Now, when we understand grace, 
we start with grace and salvation, and then we move to logistical grace, understanding that God provides everything for us to accomplish God's plan for our life. Now, think about that as a definition. God supplies everything you need to accomplish His plan for your life. Often we get our focus on other things. We want this. We'd like to have that. We get ambitious over certain things. But perhaps that's not what God has for us because that would be a distraction or it's not what we need to accomplish uh, His plan for our life. In logistical grace, God is going to give us all the basics, food, water, shelter, the air we breathe. And sometimes we need to just stop, especially if you're going through serious testing, you need to just stop and, and catalog the basics that God's given you. You've got a house. You've got a roof over your head. You, you've got a car. It may not be a new car. It may be an old car. It may be a car that provides some testing for you at times, a little adversity, but it gets you where you're going. And uh, that's God's logistical grace. He's provided these things uh, all these things for you. And we, as we think through everything that God has given us and how he supplied us with everything, that in turn leads us to developing genuine uh, humility. We see the connection here in James chapter uh, 4, verse 6. You might as well open your Bibles to James. We're going to kind of poke around a few different passages in James as we deal with grace orientation. James 4, 6 James writes, but he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So true, genuine humility is related to grace orientation. In humility, we recognize that we don't have anything that is the result of Ultimately, the result of our own efforts or who and what we are. Everything that we have comes from God. Now, you may say, well, I've worked hard. I went through university, and I studied hard, and I made good grades, and, and I've worked for what I have. Yes, but who made it even possible? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the opportunity? Who provided the framework so that you could do that? It's God. Everything that we have comes from God. And as we develop genuine humility... It links together with objectivity. And in objectivity, we're able to look at the Word of God and see ourselves for who we are and recognize that everything that we have comes from God. James references this as well in James chapter 1, where he deals with the here in the Doer passage, and he uses the uh, illustration of the mirror, that the, the one who is the genuine hearer is the one who looks into a mirror and he's not a forgetful, uh, uh, he's not a forgetful hearer. He's like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. See, the effectual hearer looks in the mirror and responds. He has humility, he has objectivity. He sees the flaws that are there. Uh, you go get up in the morning, you wake up, and you go look in the mirror, and your hair's a mess, and, and you haven't shaved, and... and uh, maybe you've gotten dressed already and your tie's not straight, what do you do? You just walk away? No, you you realize the mirror gives you an objectivity and you comb your hair and you shave and you straighten your tie. You respond to it. And that's a mark of genuine humility. It's that objectivity to recognize the truth and then to apply it uh, to our own life. So as we think about grace and salvation, and we go on to think about all that God's provided for us in logistical grace, and then in advancing grace, we realize that this is related to, to humility. James 4, 6, that God gives grace to the humble. And as we go through this, we recognize that everything that we have comes from God. Therefore, it begins to impact our view of the details of life. See, where most people are, and what most of us struggle with uh, 98% of the time, the rest of the time we're asleep, is that we think that we fall into the trap of thinking that happiness and stability comes from circumstances, people, or events. That happiness comes from circumstances, people, or events. If, if circumstances were just a certain way, 
then then I could do this. If only, you know, we catch ourselves thinking that a lot. If I only had, I think it used to be $75.37 a month more than I would be happy because I'd be able to cover all my bills. It's probably, with inflation, it's probably $750 and something cents now. But uh, there was a study done on that back in, back in the 70s. Most people think if they just had a little bit more money, then they would have enough to cover all their bills and achieve their financial goals. We think if people just responded a certain way, if I had a social life, if I had a wife, if I didn't have a wife, if I had a husband, if I didn't have that husband, or if I had another husband, or if, uh, if I had another job, or if people would just respond to me at work better or, or respect what I did better. We, we focus on the fact that if things were just a little different, if people were different, if circumstances were different, if certain events would just happen, life would then really be good. And we look to the details of life to provide stability, happiness, and, and some meaning for our life. And what God is trying to do is to get us to recognize that the details of life are great when we have them, and it's just as great when we don't. But the real source of stability, meaning, happiness is our relationship with Him. And that only comes from having doctrine in the soul that we can rely on and that provides that foundation and that stability. In light of that, I want you to look over James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, we're going to see that ultimately, as we, have, as we develop true humility, it leads to gratitude to gratefulness for all that we have, and even if we don't have it, and this develops the mastery of the details of life. We don't have to worry about getting or keeping or changing the circumstances to have happiness and stability. This gives us a position of strength to operate from. This is why Abram is able to say, Lot, take whatever you want. Because he's so secure in God providing everything for him that he recognizes it's not up to him to get, to acquire, or to change the circumstances. Because he's resting, there's that faith rest drill operating at the foundation of grace orientation. Because he's resting in God's promise that God's going to give him the land, he is now free to be generous towards Lot and to treat him in kindness, even though Lot may not deserve it, even though uh, God has promised him the land and not Lot the land, Abram is free to do this. We see the connection with humility and grace orientation and the details of life in uh, James chapter 1. Uh, let's start about verse, verse 9. We'll just sort of hit the high points here. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And the word here for the lowly brother is the brother who is in humble circumstances. It's talking about someone who doesn't have the details of life. And he is to have as the basis of his glory what God has given him. Glory in his high position, literally, not exaltation. The Greek word is is hoopsa, uh, which means his height, his his. Uh, High position. And our high position is what we have in Jesus Christ. In contrast, we have the uh, rich person, but, and, and the verb carries over into verse 10. But let the rich glory in his humility. Glory in his humility. Not humiliation it has in King James, but the word there in the Greek has the idea of humility. So the wealthy person is not to glorify in his wealth. He's not to glorify in the fact that he has all the details of life. He's to glory in, the, in his humility, in his grace orientation, recognizing that all that he has, all those details of life, the houses, the cars, the bank accounts, uh, all the clothes, membership in the golf club, whatever it may be, whatever, you know, just plug in whatever uh, your details of life are, that and it's different from everybody. Some people it's family, some people it's social life, some people it has to do with material things. But let the person who is rich in the details of life glory in his humility, not in the possession of the details of life. And then we have the illustration, because as the flower of the grass, and it's almost consistently mistranslated, 
I bet whatever translation you're looking at, it says, because of the, as the flower of the field, he will pass away. And it shouldn't be, the he shouldn't be there at all. The subject of the clause is the flower of the field. And the verb is a third person singular. And as a third person singular, it can be he, she, or it. That's third person singular. First person singular is I. Second person singular is you. Third person singular is he, she, or it. That's embedded within the verb. So you have to look at what the subject of the clause is. And the subject of the clause is the flower. The flower, it's not the flower, but it's not like the flower he will pass away, but it is like the flower passes away. Like the flower will pass away. It's a future tense. But like the flower will pass away. The, the rich needs, person needs to glory in his humility because in the same way fl- the flower of the grass will pass away. It's the flower of the grass that passes away, not the rich person. See, this isn't, a, this isn't an attack on wealth. This is a recognition that that grass pr- produces. If you look out in the wild field, you'll just look at the the wildflowers produces a flower. There's some seasons there are flowers, some seasons there aren't flowers. The flowering is the is uh, the extra benefit that you have. The grass is always there, but only there's only flowers at certain times, at certain seasons. So sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. In the same way, the wealthy person may have the details of life this decade. Next decade, he may not have the details of life. They may pass away. They are temporary. The illustration continues in verse 11. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat. This is the Scirocco wind in the uh, Middle East burning up the uh, the grass in the desert, no sooner has the burning heat than it withers the grass and the flower falls off. Notice the grass doesn't die. See, the rich, the, the person's still there. It's just the details of life that disappear under the heat of adversity. And its beautiful appearance perishes. So uh, the rich will also, and there it has the idea, so the wealth, it's not the rich man, the wealth, that is, also will fade in his pursuit. So it's talking about the fact that, that the rich person, the one who is wealthy in the details of life, needs to have humility because the details of life may disappear. It's only when we're grace-oriented that we can have a proper understanding and appreciation for the details of life that God gives us. And this is the same attitude that is expressed by the Apostle Paul over in uh, Philippians. And Philippians chapter 4, Paul is expressing his gratitude to the uh, believers in the church of Philippi for having sent him a financial gift to help sustain him while he was in prison in Rome. And he begins to talk about this in about verse 10. In Philippians 4.10 he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need. Not that I speak in regard to a lack of having the details of life. I mean, basic details. Uh, Food, shelter, and clothing. I imagine he didn't have a whole lot while he was under house arrest. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Whether I have the details of life or I don't have the details of life, I am just as happy. See, this is the expression of inner happiness as a problem-solving device. It's, what's it built on? It's built on genuine humility, and it's built on grace orientation. You see how you get into that, those advanced problem-solving devices of love and of inner happiness, and they're built on that foundation of faith rest drill, Grace orientation. In whatever state I'm in, to be content, to have tranquility, to have perfect peace and happiness. Verse 12, he goes on to say, I know how to be abased. In other words, I know how to be without, and I know how to abound. I know how to do without anything, and I know how to live when I have an abundance of material blessings. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, 
both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 13. Now, there's a verse that's usually taken out of context. The context is that he's talking about when he says, I can do all things, he's talking about handling any circumstance in life, whether it's an abundance, prosperity, or whether it's need and adversity. I can do all things. I can handle any situation through Christ who strengthens me. And then skip down a few verses. And in verse 19, he expresses the grace orientation. He says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is God's wealth. He has the ability to uh, supply us with everything that we need and to give us everything that we need. Now, back to James 1. James 1 goes on to talk about uh, blessing in the light of the lowly brother who's glorying in his exaltation in the body of Christ and the one who is rich in the details of life in his humility. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures testing. See, that's what's happening with Abram. He's learning to endure testing and to handle the testing by using those spiritual skills that God has supplied. And when he does that, he builds endurance. That's the theme of James 1. As he endures temptation, we're told, for church-age believers, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then there's a warning. Let no one say when he is tested, I am tested by God. See, God's not the source of temptation. Temptation has two aspects. It has an objective aspect, and it has an internal subjective aspect. And that subjective aspect that we have now is our sin nature that is attracted to sin, just as a magnet is attracted to iron filing, so that, that when certain circumstances come up, you have an internal pressure that you discover that you're attracted to certain things and it makes it difficult to resist. And you can't blame God when you fail. You can't say, well, God tempted me. Well, God isn't tempting you. Uh, God may allow you to go through certain circumstances that test you, but God is not the one who is uh, tempting you, who's putting that pressure on you to sin. And James goes on to say, For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. This is that pressure from the sin nature. See, every test boils down to the sin nature. Every test boils down to the fact that are you going to try to handle the circumstance through your own efforts, your own energy, your own ability, through some kind of sin or human good, or are you going to handle the situation by relying upon promises, principles, and provisions of God in the faith rest drill, and then utilization of various other uh, spiritual skills, whether it's grace orientation, doctrine orientation, impersonal love for others, uh, inner happiness, whatever it is, are you going to handle it that way and stay in fellowship, abiding in Christ, or are you going to handle it through your trying to attempt to handle it through your own efforts? And so those who endure by staying in fellowship pass the test and move forward and advance in spiritual maturity. So grace orientation involves understanding what happened in salvation, thinking about it, reflecting upon God's goodness and kindness to us in salvation, and in providing everything we need logistically and grace as we advance. It's related to genuine humility. In genuine humility, we develop gratitude for all that God has given us, and then we are not concerned about the details of life. That's in God's hands. That frees us then to have a relaxed mental attitude. We're going to relax in the circumstance. Just as Abram relaxes in the midst of all of this uh, turmoil going around him and the give and take and the back and forth between Lot's servants and his servants, Abram relaxes, makes an objective decision, and, and utilizes grace in how he, how he handles uh, Lot. And he deals with him in generosity. And this is grace orientation. He doesn't deal with him in any kind of bitterness. He doesn't deal with him in trying to, trying to get even, okay, you haven't controlled your, your people, so uh, you just take this piece of land and get out of here. He gives him the best of the land. 
And then we see the problem that Lot develops because he doesn't have grace orientation. He is not the master of the details of life. He focuses on the valley, and it has all the, the richness and the agricultural produce, and it's green and it's lush, and he is looking to that for his happiness, ignoring the spiritual dimension of what's going on in the valley. And as I pointed out last time, it's the spiritual dimensions that, that is the ultimate causative factor in history. It didn't matter how rich the valley was. It didn't matter about all the natural resources in, in the valley. What ultimately determined what would happen there was the uh, sin of the uh, Sodomites and those living in the other, the other four cities of the valley. So because he lacks the grace orientation, he has no mastery over the details of life, no relaxed mental attitude. He's out there trying to get, get, and get. And so he takes advantage of the generosity of, of Abram. Well, this gives us an understanding of how to utilize grace in problem solving, especially when it has to do with adversity testing related to people. That is almost always the orientation of grace, is how to handle problems with people, whether it's family problems, whether it's marriage problems, whether it's dealing with coworkers. We have to deal with them on, in grace, and grace means that we, we deal with them on the basis of who God is, and what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross, not on the basis of what they might deserve, not on the basis of their own actions, their petty character, whatever it may be, but we are going to extend every amount of kindness and generosity and goodness to them that we can because the model is the grace of God at salvation. We'll come back next time and we'll get into the next test, which has to do with Abram functioning as a blessing. Remember those three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. God commanded Abram to be a blessing, and now he's going to have the opportunity because there is a military invasion underfoot, and it is Abram who is going to come to the rescue. And that, again, is an expression of his own grace orientation, but it's also an expression of his being a blessing to those around him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to come to a greater understanding of your grace and how we utilize that in our own spiritual life as we uh, face various problems, difficulties, and adversities. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.